Thank you, Tom. Good morning, Lakewood Bible. If you're visiting this morning, we want to welcome you. You are in the preaching service. And we're going to continue in our worship this morning. We're taking up with Acts 7. 60 verses of Acts 7. <laughs> we're going to do it, though. We're not going to read the whole thing. Um, that would take up too much time. So we're just going to start at 51. So we're in 751, and if you would stand, we're going to read a few verses here to get our hearts right and kind of see where Stephen ends up in this text. This is 751. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You may be seated. Chapter 7 is the longest speech, and it is the longest account in the entire book of Acts. And it shows us the importance that the writer Luke attached to this chapter. Last week, we set the stage with these two sides facing off in a hearing, with the Sanhedrin bringing some really heavy charges against Stephen, the the church's first martyr. And in any other context, this would be no contest. We wouldn't even be considering Stephen as any match for this austere body, the Sanhedrin. They were not only the judges and leaders of Israel, but they were the teachers of, and the theologians of Israel. Nobody ever challenged them on theological grounds. No one challenged them on anything. They knew everything, and they controlled everything in Israel. This was the closest thing to Jewish royalty that Stephen was up against. On paper, this was not even going to be a fair fight, especially given the false witnesses that are lined up against Stephen, leveling some serious charges, being speaking against God, Moses, the Mosaic law in the temple. And surely the killers were ready with their stones, including a man named Saul, a certain zealot. But this man, Stephen, he was standing alone, a Hellenistic Jew, a Greek Jew. He was not one of their own. Remember, to be on the Sanhedrin, you had to be either a Levite or a priest Or you had to be from one of those families that could prove a pure lineage. Yet Stephen was an outsider. He was a blasphemer. He was a major threat to Judaism because he was shutting down all comers in the Greek synagogues. Speaking of the Messiah, this man full of grace, he's full of the Holy Spirit, he's full of power, and he's full of faith. You could say, this is the calm before the storm. And it's emblematic in the demeanor of Stephen. Many of you know the verse, that his face was compared to that of an angel. We saw that last week. Yet this hearing would blow up, but it would take 51 verses out of 60 for the fuse to be lit. Normally, any self-respecting expository preacher like myself to take on 60 verses In a sermon, that's verboten, right? But Acts 7 is that one exception, and here's the reason why. We have to see where Stephen's heading from the beginning to see where he ends up, because his arguments are very subtle in their construction, not only to make a defense against these four charges against him, but also to launch a scathing attack against his enemies. And knowing the whole speech, we can see where Stephen's going as he traces the history of Abraham and Joseph and Moses and the tabernacle. And we know when we know his conclusion in advance, we know that he's leading all this to who? To the righteous one, to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But the Sanhedrin, on the other hand, they're clueless. They're clueless. They, in real time, they don't get these brilliant points that Stephen is making to destroy these false charges. And at the same time, Stephen convicts the truly guilty party. 
who is standing against God and is standing against his anointed, the righteous one whom they've betrayed and murdered. And you can only appreciate the airtight case that Stephen makes in Acts 7 by taking all 60 of these verses together as one unit. And my hope is, if you've previously read this account and studied this, and you felt like it was a tedious recital of Israel's history that had no real relevance to the charges that are brought against Stephen, my hope is that after this morning, you see this text as a skillful and subtle proclamation of the gospel, further marking that great transition in the book of Acts from Judaism to Jesus. No doubt this confrontation also reminds us of a previous confrontation that gave cause for this confrontation. And that was the confrontation predestined from before time began between God's anointed sinless son, the Messiah, and sinful man. This is represented so well in Acts 4. I think we should look at it again. Acts 4 reads, For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So this battle that Stephen has been thrust into was precipitated by the battle for the ages, the sinful world coming against the sinless one. And we see Stephen as a type of Christ, a mirror of Christ, as a disciple of Christ. There's so many similarities to the opposition that Christ and Stephen faced. For example, in the trial of Stephen, we see, as with our Lord, the charges are coming from the same people, the Sanhedrin. We also see the charges are filled with the same false testimony. And we also see the charges are the same. It's blasphemy against God, against Moses, against the Mosaic law, and against the temple. Yet Stephen was the one before Paul to stand up as a defender, not only of these charges, but also a defender of the faith of Christianity. Paul is known as the greatest defender of the faith, writing as much as half of the New Testament. Yet here was Stephen, preceding Paul, defending the same accusations that were leveled against Christ. And he also followed Christ so faithfully and mirrored him so beautifully as a servant to the Lord in his works, as a spokesman for the Lord in his message, and as a sacrifice, giving his life for the Lord, and also as an example of forgiveness to his executors. As an aside, we must point out the possible powerful witness of Stephen to that one in the crowd who would become God's chosen instrument to bring the word of God to the Gentiles, to carry the name of God, and by the way, dominate nearly half of the whole second half of the book of Acts. Verse 58 records, when they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at, a, at the feet of a young man named Saul. You know, in glory, we're going to find out the true impact that Stephen's word had on Saul of Tarsus. Saul, known as the persecutor of the way, would be God's chosen instrument to spread the disciples from Jerusalem as the persecutor. Yet Paul, as the proclaimer of the way, would be God's chosen, chosen instrument to spread the gospel beyond Jerusalem. Both were God's way of pushing this early church out of its Jerusalem nest to fulfill the great commission to take the gospel to the world. Now, Stephen's speech, or sometimes people call it Stephen's sermon, or even his apologia, which is not an apology, doesn't apologize for anything. Apologia is where we get the word apologetics, and it's actually... A defense. So his speech is kicked off by the simple question 
from the high priest in the, in the first verse. Are these things so? What he's really asking is, how do you plead to these charges of speaking against God, Moses, the law, and the temple? Stephen begins with an obligatory greeting, addressing his opposition as brothers and fathers. Fathers referring to the Sanhedrin. Then Stephen uses a rarely used reference to God as the God of glory. It's used only once in Scripture in Psalm 29. And this phrase encapsulates all the mighty attributes of God, giving glory to God. This highly respectful, unique reference to God would be a strange way to address him from someone who's blaspheming him. Stephen, by addressing the Lord by this exalted name, is basically saying, this is the God I serve. This is the God I worship. This God of glory. How Stephen begins his speech is the very glory of God revealed to him from heaven when he finishes. So you see, he starts with the God of glory when he finishes his speech. Verse 55 records, But he saw, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, we, before we dive in the contents of Stephen's speech, it's important to highlight Stephen's strategy, which is simultaneously to refute these four charges against him, while at the same time setting forth God's dealings with the nation of Israel in order to, number one, vindicate the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, but also to condemn the Sanhedrin for their betrayal and murder. Our first section in your outline of Stephen's defense, verses 2 through 16, Stephen's view of God. These verses deal with Israel's patriarchal period, which Stephen uses to refute the charge of blaspheming God. And we'll pick it up in verse 2. Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child, God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on their second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. So Stephen right off makes clear that he affirms their shared history as Jews, even calling Abraham our father in verse 2. The false witnesses had accused Stephen of blaspheming God Yet here he proceeds to show the Sanhedrin 
that his view of God was absolutely orthodox. All through this account, we see Stephen portraying God as the sovereign from the beginning in his dealings with the nation of Israel. He is saying through this history, I am not blaspheming God. I love God. In letter A of your outline, God brings the Abrahamic covenant, verses 2 through 8. Stephen affirmed the belief that the God of glory had given the Abrahamic covenant to Israel, which contained the land, as we see in verses 2 through 4. Abraham, Stephen points out, originated in Mesopotamia, not the promised land, which the Sanhedrin had come to idolize. The Abrahamic covenant also contained the seed in verse 5 and the blessing in verses 6 and 7. And that God had sealed the covenant with a sign, the sign of circumcision in verse 8. Now, letter B in your outline is God's faithfulness to his people, verses 9 through 16. Stephen next turns to show how God was active in preserving Joseph and his family. Surely, Stephen had chosen this history for two reasons. One is to show how God miraculously saved his chosen people in faithfulness to his promises. And number two, to show the remarkable similarities between Joseph, a Savior God raised up, and Jesus Christ. Although he never uses the name Jesus Christ, referring to him only later as the righteous one, the connection is implied here. And these Jews got it. In verses 9 and 10, we see how God was always with Joseph, even when his jealous brother sold him off as a slave into Egypt, just as Jesus was sold off by one of his disciples. But God raised Joseph from prison and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who makes him ruler over all Egypt, but also over his household. The implied connection here is just as Joseph was rejected by his brothers, And raised up by God, Jesus was rejected by his brethren and raised up by God. And please don't miss the intentional use of the word jealous here. Jealousy, referring to Joseph's brothers. Another implied connection that the Pharisees couldn't miss. We think of his triumphal entry in John 12, which reads, The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, we are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now, verses 11 through 13 display the means by which God would sustain his people through a famine and use the threat of starvation to reunite a family. With that dramatic revelation we're all familiar with by Joseph to his brothers, that he's not only alive, but he's second only to Pharaoh. Verses 14 and 15 detail the call by Joseph to bring the family of Israel to Egypt, blessed and protected by God through Pharaoh. Then Jacob and the patriarchs would all eventually die in Egypt. Stephen here again using the intentional pronoun, our fathers, when addressing them. Now Stephen's narrative of the patriarchal period ends with their burial in a tomb in Samaria, Shechem to be exact. Stephen's point here is that the burial took place in the promised land. And this act highlights the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. Clearly, Stephen's goal for showing his love for God and his love for the cherished history of Israel is evident. He's no blasphemer of God. He's no hater of, of Israel. Now, our next major section is the largest, and it deals with Moses and the law. And it deals with Stephen answering that charge that he's blaspheming Moses in the Mosaic Law. And this is verses 17 through 43. We have to take these big chunks here. (laughs) It's such a long section. Um, This is Stephen's view of Moses and the law. Here Stephen responds to the charge of blaspheming Moses by continuing his review of Israel's history during the period of the Exodus. And again, Stephen's theology throughout is orthodox. But his implied connections abound between the career of Moses and the career of Jesus Christ. Starting in verse 17, we'll read this section. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, 
the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven. And it's written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness of house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Whew, that was a long section. So under letter A in your outline in this section uh, titled The Career of Moses, as we transition from Abraham and the patriarchs to Moses, it's important to remember the promise that God made to Abraham concerning the captivity of Israel, of Israel and the judgment on their oppressors and their freedom when they came out of Israel. In verses 17 through 19, we see the Israelites increase greatly until another Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. The Pharaoh took advantage of the Israelites, enslaving and mistreating them even attempting to destroy their babies. And then in verses 20 through 22, Moses is born, preserved, protected, educated in Egypt. Imagine the deliverer who would be the pillar of the Mosaic law on which all of Judaism rested was born and reared in a foreign land and raised in a Gentile court. When we consider how much the Sanhedrin worshiped Moses and worshiped the promised land, we can see how much of the content of Stephen's message is so subtle, isn't it? As he's pointing these things out to, him, to them. In verses 23 through 29, we see Moses attempt to deliver his people, the children of God, 
who are being oppressed in Egypt or results in him going to Midian, exiled. They didn't understand that he was the chosen one. This parallels Christ. This should be glaringly obvious to the Sanhedrin. In verses 30 through 34, Moses receives from the burning bush his commission, likely from Christ himself in pre-incarnate form, a Christology, as the great I am. Remember John 8 when Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So Moses would be God's instrument to deliver the Israelites on his return, only after being rejected, just as Joseph would save his people on his return after being rejected, just as Christ will save his people on his return, his second advent, after being what? Rejected. Versus, you see the points he's making here. They're subtle. They're easy to pass by. But these Jews were getting it. The Sanhedrin was getting it. Verses 35 and 36 clarify the rejection of Moses, who was challenged by his brethren, who made you ruler and judge? Yet he was sent by God as the ruler and the redeemer of those people, those same people, and blessed by God with signs and wonders that he performed at the Red Sea and in the, the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus later performing signs and wonders to verify his status as what? Ruler and redeemer of the world. Verses 37 through 43, Stephen here lingers a little longer with Moses, whom, in whom they trusted, making only one of two indirect references to Jesus Christ in the whole speech. Here making reference to the great messianic prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, reminding them that it was Moses who said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And what's interesting is almost in the same breath, Stephen makes reference to Moses as the lawgiver, bringing the Mosaic law to the people from Mount Sinai. So what was Stephen's point? Tying these two together? It was that the Sanhedrin should know that the Mosaic law wasn't the end-all, be-all but that God through Moses promised a prophet like me, the Messiah. In other words, the Ten Commandments was not the end of God's revelation to them. A Messiah would come, and as Deuteronomy 18 says, what does it say? They must listen to him. So what he's saying is the Messiah to come would supersede the Mosaic law. Do you see that? It's just it's so subtle in the text, but uh, Stephen is, uh, that's why this is such a brilliant speech. And again, in verse 39, indicates our fathers refused to listen to Moses and the teaching of the Mosaic law, but instead turned their hearts back to Egypt, back to their place of slavery. And worse, verses 40 through 43 state they turned from Moses to idolatry, the golden calf. This is rebellion of the highest order. God then turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, the worship of the sun and stars. This is worshiping the creation, not the creator. And then God giving them up to their desires, to their own lusts. By implication, Stephen was saying that the Jewish leaders would suffer the same fate as recorded in the quote from Amos. Look at verse 42. That Israel would be sent into exile beyond Babylon. This is a promise of another captivity for Israel, the Babylonian captivity, far from the promised land. But this was also Stephen's way of saying that by rejecting the Messiah, that Moses prophesied was as bad as rejecting Moses and turning to idolatry, which would be judged despite all their sacrifices. Stephen again is showing his love for the history of Israel. And in this case, his love for Moses and the law, but that the guilt is on the leaders of Israel who keep rejecting God and his appointed messengers 
and his appointed message. Their sacrifices would be rejected because they rejected God's anointed ruler and redeemer. These subtle connections should have been unmistakable to these Jews. Foremost, that the coming Messiah would supersede Moses and the Mosaic law. Yet just as their fathers rejected Moses and the law, you have now rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, our next section in your outline is number three, Stephen's view of the temple. This is verses 44 through 50. So Stephen's dealing with that charge that you have blasphemed, you've spoken against the temple. And it reads, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High God does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So Stephen has already refuted the general charge that he's against God, that he's against Moses, and he's against the law. He would next take up with the charges against the temple. And here he points out that the temple, like the promised land and the Mosaic law, was yet another example of the Jewish leaders idolizing the wrong thing. In verse 44, Stephen points out that it wasn't the temple that God ordered to be built, but the tabernacle, or what they call the tent of testimony. Why was that? It's because the detail and pattern was so critical, because the tabernacle's blueprints had instructive meaning to the nation of Israel. Stephen then, building on the importance of the tabernacle in verse 45, mentions how it was even brought into the promised land. And it would continue to be God's ordained center of worship all throughout David's reign. And as verse 46 suggests, David was the one who asked to build the temple. This was not God's initiative. The desire to build the temple by David has been described as a royal whim, tolerated by God, but not endorsed by God. David himself wasn't even permitted to build the temple, was he? But that fell on his son Solomon, who although Solomon was mightily blessed of God, he did not find favor with God because of his idolatry to the the level of David. In verses 48 through 50, we see Stephen seemingly eager to give a summation concerning the temple. Reminding the Sanhedrin that the Most High God, the God of the heavens, he does not dwell in houses made with hands. Even Solomon acknowledged this when he dedicated the very temple. The Jews knew this. Stephen then wisely quotes a prophet as respected as Moses with Isaiah in Isaiah 66. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? That's not exactly a ringing endorsement, is it, from God? Yet they elevate this building to a status God has not ordained. Stephen, instead of defending his love for the temple, gives the true biblical relevance of the temple. Basically saying of the temple, which the Sanhedrin attached so much value to, this was not God's primary venue. God would replace it, God had rejected it, and God was above it. As Jesus told the woman in the well in John 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, this is a reference to the temple, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. 
And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. God is omnipresent. Psalm 139 records, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. The Jewish leaders were wrong about confining God to a temple as if he lived there. Stephen understood this. But he also understood that Christ was the new tabernacle. He was the true tent, not the temple. And it could only be in Christ and through Christ that man could approach God. So Stephen's conclusion is the temple made by hands has been receiving the worship that is meant for God alone. Therefore, the charge that he's against the temple cannot be verified. How can he be guilty of something, of being against something that God was never in favor of? Finally, we come to Stephen's grand crescendo, which we've already read in 51 there. But what we must realize, only someone full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of power, and full of grace could stand alone before the highest court in Israel, the supreme court of Israel, the highest power structure in the Jewish world, and say what Stephen says next. They had brought charges against him, that he was against God, he was against Moses, he was against the law, he was against the temple. Charges which he summarily dismisses. And now Stephen would bring his charges against them. This is point four in your outline, verses 51 to 53, Stephen's accusation. You stiff-necked, uncircumcised, and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. These were explosive charges. There may be no more devastating charge to a Jew than what Stephen just laid on them. Why? Because to call a Jew uncircumcised and hardened ears is to call them unclean and no better than the Gentiles. Basically calling them unregenerate apostate Jews as well as stiff-necked, unable to turn their head to see, meaning they were rigid, unbending, unwilling to respond. He doesn't stop there. As if to summarize the contents of his entire speech, Stephen says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. As your fathers resisted Joseph the first time, so do you. As your fathers resisted Moses the first time, so do you. Do you start to see the argument coming together that he covered, covering the, the dealings of God with the nation of Israel? And remember, in, Jeru- in Judaism, there's only two options. You either obey God or you resist God. And perhaps no one in Jerusalem prided themselves more by obeying God than the Sanhedrin. They were at the top of that man-made works-based system working their way to God by the sparks of their own making. And now they're being told that they aren't obeying God, they're resisting God. They're disobeying God. And Stephen is not done. He's not even close to being done. In verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. This is Stephen's wielding the mighty sword of the Spirit. This was the point of no return physically for Stephen. Stephen's not worried about those that can kill the body. He knows that's coming. He just rightly indicted Judaism for their well-known and self-admitted ill-treatment of the prophets. The Sanhedrin was behaving now just as their forefathers did. For Jewish tradition held that Jeremiah was stoned 
And Isaiah was sawn in two. And this pattern of rejecting and murdering the prophets that spoke of the coming one moves from the prophets to the betrayal and murder of that coming one, the righteous one himself, Jesus Christ. The murder of Jesus Christ brought to the climax Israel's long history of rebuking and killing God's prophets. There was no confusion about what Stephen was saying. They had killed their Messiah. And their guilt was all the greater because they received God's law, which angels had delivered, but had disobeyed it. They were the real blasphemers, not him. Now who is on trial? Who's on trial? Suddenly the Sanhedrin realized they were on trial and they were the ones found guilty by a man full of the Spirit, full of grace, full of power, and full of faith. Suddenly there's nothing more that needs to be said. Indeed, there's nothing more that could be said. Stephen began in the docket to give his defense of the charges of speaking against God, Moses, the law, and the temple. But now he becomes the prosecutor and the Sanhedrin, the guilty defendants, guilty of the greatest crime in the history of the world, rejecting and killing their own Messiah, God's only perfect son, the perfect lamb of God. There can be no greater crime. There can be no greater transgression against God. And although Stephen never mentions Christ's name, he is all the while preaching Christ here. He just demonstrated that all of Israel's history and experience was pointing to the Redeemer. One plan of redemption for the world and the witness of Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David and the tabernacle in one way or another underlined that God would not be confined to the narrowness of Judaism. Narrowness that was seen in in the promised land. He wasn't confined to that. Or narrowness being confined to the corrupt legalism and ceremonialism of the law. Or narrowness of being stuck in the confines of the temple. God's plan of redemption so exceeded their toxic dead religion. Finally, point five in your outline, verses 54 through 60, we see their reaction to Stephen, the stoning of Stephen. These words cut deep. These cut to the quick calling out these unregenerate Christ killers, and they retaliate fiercely. If we just take the verb forms from 54 to 58, we see that when they heard these things, they were enraged, they ground their teeth at him, they cried out with a loud voice, they stopped their ears, they rushed together at him, they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. Yet right in the middle of all this activity, we see something amazing, something miraculous. Stephen, in full control by the Holy Spirit, maintains his composure and gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The two sides here couldn't present a greater contrast. On one side, you had 70-plus bloodthirsty men rushing toward their victim with their eyes on one man, On the other side, a solitary man with a face like that of an angel with his eyes on the one true God. This reminds us of the same author, Luke, his words in Luke 21. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. What a gracious God we serve. When one of his own is facing his darkest hour, what does he do? He opens up heaven to, so Stephen can see his reward. So Stephen can see that his redemption draws nigh. What a great God we serve. And for this good and faithful servant, it is not only the glory of God, but Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God. So stunning was his sight. It reminds us of Isaiah 6, doesn't it? When Isaiah looks into the throne room of God, And he is undone. He's a dead man. Stephen, surely excited, overwhelmed, enough to feel the need to repeat himself in verse 56. It's like he's saying, look, do you see this? The Son of God, Jesus Christ awaits me. The one who I just spoke of. He sees him standing, not sitting at the right hand of the Father, because he's there to receive Stephen. 
But the Sanhedrin, they can only see vengeance against one of God's prophets, just as the leaders of Israel had always done with Joseph, with Moses. And they stone him. You might rightly ask, what good has this done? How does this help the cause of the early church? Well, in the second half of verse 58, there's a sentence introducing Luke's next major figure. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Here is the next link for the early church. He's on the wrong team at this moment. And worse, it's likely he's in charge of the execution of Stephen, watching the garments of his killers. Even our next chapter, 8.1, says he approved of Stephen's execution. For now, Saul and Stephen would be on opposite sides of the cross. But the next great defender of the Christian faith, he was on the scene. The seed, perhaps, already planted by Stephen's speech. Perhaps his speech and the manner of his death would haunt Paul and haunt Saul and torment Saul in his zeal to wipe out the church. Since Saul was present to hear Stephen's prayer in verse 59, crying out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And after seeing Stephen fall to his knees, surely from the, the many stones raining down on him, in verse 60, in his second prayer, hearing Stephen plead with God in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Certainly Saul had never seen a man die this way with forgiveness in his heart for his killers. Our next, our, then our text concludes with Stephen after praying this prayer falling asleep. It was truly a blessing for Stephen who was in, for Stephen to die in prayer to his Lord. Clearly, he was already in the hand of God who was in control of all things. Despite the violence and bloodshed of the scene, we're left with this peaceful image of Stephen's death with divine composure in the face of death and great mercy for his enemies in his final moments. Stephen is a type of Christ as the church's first martyr. God would use Stephen's death and the persecution that followed to do whatever his hand and his plan predestined to take place. And that would be to scatter this early church out of Jerusalem to spread the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the world. A persecuted church is a pure church and a growing church, an expanding church. It's like stamping, trying to stomp out a campfire on a windy day. Those embers of truth are cast to the wind to spread the message of the gospel far and wide. In the face of opposition and persecution, Tertullian was famous for saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the Christian faith. The church that started here in the book of Acts continues to this day right here in Lakewood. But so does the martyrdom of believers. Stephen was the first. Millions would follow right into the throne room of God. Millions of martyrs. Stephen was one man up against the most entrenched legalistic religious system in the world. And he conquered them because Christ first conquered them. And no matter what happens... We will be victorious as well because Christ was first victorious. And victory will come because not, not because we're part of some big, bloated, man-made system of religion like Judaism, which we just saw Stephen verbally destroy. Stephen didn't give his life for some religion based on his good works. Religions that holds out access to God like it's some prize that you can earn if you're just good enough. That's not what just happened here. No one has ever been saved by religion. Every Christian who has ever been saved was saved by a person. The person and work of Jesus Christ. But God still has his own who are stuck in these false 
work-based religions that he has yet to call out. So our heart breaks for those who are stuck in Judaism. Our heart breaks for those stuck in Catholicism or Islam or the Jehovah's Witnesses or any other bloated religious system with their levels and layers of pious, righteous men. This is not the way to God. So what is the way to God? It's not being pious and righteous. Not being good. Does that sound strange? It's recognizing that you are not good. You are not righteous. Scripture says there is none good. No, not one. Jesus didn't come for the good. He didn't come for the righteous. Because they are truly self-righteous. Jesus came to call sinners the broken. He came to call them to repentance. Psalm 34 says, The Lord is near the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. When you are shattered, when you're at the end of yourself, when you're sick of your sin, when you are sick of yourself, only then does God have you right where he wants you. If that is you this morning, repent of your sins and turn in faith to the only one that can save you, the only one that can save your soul. And it's not some false, bloated religious system. It is a person, Jesus Christ. So let us uh, pray as the worship team comes up, as we wrap up our time together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this message from Stephen. We, we look at a world where on our horizon persecution is coming. And our society is becoming more and more fractured. Yet, Lord, just help us see and model what Stephen has taught us here. And that is to be a servant for you and to speak boldly for you, to speak your name. We praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel. 